Hello and welcome back to Speedrun, the fast-talking video game podcast where we talk about pretty much anything weird, retro, or otherwise that interests us. My name, of course, is Jamie, and joining us as always is Jazzy. I'm back. Welcome back. How was the house hunting saga? Uh, hell. <laughs> There's a reason why it wasn't on the past couple episodes, and I promise it's a good reason. Uh, the market is awful, but we emerged victorious, and that is what matters. I'll, I'll clap to that. I'll clap to that. But joining us today is someone who I've wanted to have on the show since we started the show. One of my favorite YouTubers, and also the host of the this or one of the hosts of the This Week in Retro podcast, Neil RMC. Hello, oh, you, you got today? me on a fast talking podcast. Have you heard my show? <laughs> I have heard your show. I got you on not just the not just a fast talking video game podcast, the fast talking video game podcast. <laughs> I'll do my best. The, <laughs> the I'm sure it means something. We'll get it on a mug eventually. The Ohio State University, which is apparently the... how you're supposed to pronounce it. Oh, it's not Ohio State. It's the Ohio State. Whenever I say the Ohio State, people get so persnickety about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like uh, the big debate here in Victoria where it's like, all right, well, is it Uvic or is it Uavic? To which I say, if you pronounce it oh. Uvic, you, you, you clearly did not attend. Right. But anyways, my own uh, pompousness aside... <laughs> Today we're talking about something that I feel like, and I say this because we have our cameras on, and I see a bunch of beautiful old retro PCs and retro PC boxes in the background, retro computers, retro microcomputers, I see that C64. We're talking about something that I feel like Neil is uniquely qualified on this podcast to talk about, and we're talking about fantastic British microcomputers that North America never got. And before I start the timer proper, for those who are younger, because I know that's roughly half our demographics, and when, by younger I mean like, uh, you know, under, like, you know, under 20, Neil, what, could you define what a microcomputer is very quickly in the shortest of terms? What is a microcomputer? Uh, <laughs> it's a computer like any other computer. The defining factor usually is that it's got a keyboard uh, in comparison to your consoles. That's pretty much the, the big difference. Mm -hmm. And I think good examples of this would definitely be, uh, I'm just looking over at my shelf here, but be like the VIC-20 or the TI-99 or uh, yeah. I'd say usually the Amiga. The one I have on hand is an A2000, which is very much so not that <laughs> but you know like would it be fair to still call like an 8500 and 81200 a micro i think i think we're splitting hairs by definition i would say that probably is a microcomputer I, yeah I, I would um are you are you thinking in your mind that a microcomputer is more of a wedge shape or something like a, a zx spectrum here a smaller type device rather than a desktop form factor that's what i'm thinking in my mind but is that completely yeah. accurate yeah. I would call them all microcomputers, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I know some people are like, well, if it's made before, if it's made after a certain date, it's not. I'm like, that, now that, that's, that's splitting hairs. 
<laughs> that sounds like gatekeeping. That sounds yeah. like gatekeeping. You know what? If I want to build a Raspberry Pi uh, in a wedge-shaped case and load it up with all the honest, what, what would I even use a Pi for? All the the Japanese PS One games I want. That is still technically a micro if the keyboard does something. So is the Pi a microcomputer when it's a Pi, but something else when you put it in a desktop case? <laughs> I mean, no, that's called for, baking the pie. Yeah, that's called <laughs> baking the pie. Yeah. And well, here's the thing as well. Like, I, I consider the wedge shape, but I mean, are there other defining factors besides just the wedge shape? Well, the micro from microcomputer, I would take from microprocessor rather than a size definition. So that's why I would class mm. them all as microcomputers. Um, ah, so yeah. maybe I went a bit far out of that. <laughs> and just for but, the listeners who might be a little bit younger than us, uh, for those who are unaware, while well, we were enjoying our consoles around the NES and SNES time, there was a revolution in Europe of computer games, specifically like homemade ones and indie distributed on consoles like C64, the ZX Spectrum. Uh, if you haven't looked into it, there are some gems on these really, really cool consoles. Uh, and for a name that I know everyone knows, I think one of the biggest names that got to start uh, making games for the Spectrum in particular was Rare. It's true. Mm-hmm. But going into that, I'm going to start the timer. Neil, give us a quick rundown of, let's say, the top three that you think defined home computing in the 1980s. In the, UK. in the 1980s. Okay, so here in the UK, uh, has the timer started? Are we off, Jamie? The timer has started. We're the off. timer has started. Okay, so here in the UK, the, races. Uh, the big thing in the UK is we often talk about the great video games crash in the early 80s. And it's only in, in more recent years, as information has spread across the internet and, and people have got to know different regions better, that um, I think a lot of countries have come to realize that the UK didn't really suffer from that because we were so much more into our microcomputers than into our consoles. So while Atari were losing a million dollars a day in 1983, we were booming here. Uh, And the kind of computers that were really popular over here, well, it was all really kick-started by a chap called Clive Sinclair, Sir Sir Clive Sinclair now, with his computer, the ZX80, which came out in 1980. And um, I've got one, well, I've got the sequel, the successor down here, ZX81, which came out a year later. Um, it looks like that very, uh, that very small micro. Is beautiful. This is in kit that form. That is really gorgeous. So you could buy it as a kit already made. So this is still the kit in here as it was in 81. And um, you could get the kit for under 50 pounds. And the pre-made computer was about £79, £79.95. So if you think about microcomputing in the US, you were thinking about the Apple II, the TRS-80, the Commodore PET, and the price of those machines, what were they, $1,000 plus? These are thereabouts. Sub, yeah, yeah, sub $100 um, microcomputers. And that's why we all flopped to microcomputers here in the UK, because the point of entry was so, so cheap. And we could do what we wanted. The ZX80 it had 1K of RAM. So it was pretty much a necessity to put a 16K RAM pack in the back. And then it was a pretty capable for the time and certainly for the price machine. So that's really what got the ball rolling. So I think I'd put the ZX80 in the top three. The next one would be the BBC Micro 1981. And this is an awesome computer, which was built off the back of something called the Computer Literacy Project here in the UK. So this was a big drive where the government 
um, they went on a bit of a tour. They scouted around the world in the late 70s and recognized that the revolution, the, the home computer revolution, kicked off by the Trinity, the TRS-80, the Apple II, the Commodore PET. They were seeing this happening in the US and elsewhere. It was going to have a massive effect on our workforce. And um, instead of um, trying to stop computers from coming into the country, they said, knowledge is power. We have to educate our country and make sure that people are ready for this revolution. So as part of that, they built what was called the Computer Literacy Project in association with the British Broadcasting Corporation. They set up this whole scheme of um, TV shows, um, lesson plans for schools, um, all of this stuff, and a dedicated machine just for the whole computer literacy project. And that was the BBC Micro. Very capable um, machine. Um, in fact, it's, it's the roots of the Raspberry Pi. It goes all the way back there um, with Even Upton and, and the rest of the team. Um, so... Um, the BBC Micro has to be up there. Have you ever had an ex had experience with the BBC Micro? Have you played with it or emulated Actually, it before? It's funny. I haven't emulated it, but the funny thing about Victoria is I remember back before, I've heard that back before the 90s especially, it was very easy for people from uh, the UK and Australia and New Zealand specifically to just move to Canada. So as such, we actually have, and then also as nowadays, we have a huge influx of people uh, in Victoria, at the very least going to university here who, uh, you know, coming from parts of Asia. So we have a massive import gaming scene. Like I was at this shop in uh, Vancouver about a month back when, for those wondering, traveling essentially, I was in Vancouver for essential reasons. But uh, they had like, just an entire shell filled with Super Famicom stuff. But then behind that, they had a bunch of boxes of, like, you know, American, like, Cocos. And uh, they had... It's the only place where I saw not only a uh, Timex Sinclair in the box, but an actual Spectrum in the box. And I didn't see a micro... A BBC micro itself. But I saw, like, a very... A couple of beat-up, like, game boxes. Okay, Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the, the BBC Micro, it did make it to the US. Uh, I think it sold about only sold about 50,000 units and all the excess stock came back to the UK, had the power supplies ripped out and were sold here. So it really, it really flopped in the US, um, which is a shame because it was such a capable computer and had a brilliant basic language on there, really capable basic language, uh, one of the fastest going on the 8-bit machines. So that was a really good machine. Um, and it would have probably been one of the very first computers that I ever used because, because of the computer literacy project. When I was five years old and I went to primary school, my first class at school, there was a BBC Micro at the back of the classroom. And there was, throughout my school life, upgraded in later years to the Acorn Archimedes, which was the successor by Acorn, who also made the BBC Micro. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's probably why I went on to have a career in IT, why me and so many others were very comfortable with computing. Between that in the classroom and the low-cost ZX Spectrum at home, you know, we had a, a incredible access to computers in the 80s, certainly in the early 80s, for a very low price point. So those are, those are two. You want one more from me, don't you? Um, Yes. I've got a few next to me. <clears throat> it has to be the widest computer in the world. I don't know if that'll even fit on shot. This is the oh Amstrad CPC-464. Oh, wow. With the tape deck there. 
Um, yeah. This was my first computer at home. Um, I would have got that in 1986. Um, I've never seen one in real life before. And never I must seen one? Say on, on your cam- I've seen them on the channel, but I've never seen one in real life. And I can tell just from how you're holding it, it is way longer than I could have ever expected. It is a wide boy. <laughs> it's a very it wide, a boy. wide boy. I was about to say that. I mean, that, that much of it is, is cassette deck. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if we take the ZX Spectrum in comparison, okay, you can see. Yeah. Now, the, nice. C, the, the 461 never made it to the US. You did get the 6128 in the US. I, again, I don't know about Canada. Um, that was the successor to it because this one had a disk drive instead of a tape drive. And so they, and 128K of RAM. So they pushed this with CPM as more of a business machine in the US. Um, but it failed. <laughs> it didn't do well until uh, pretty much every British computer that went over to the US flopped. I can't really think of any successes. Um, but yeah, the CPC 464, it was my first computer. It was laid out with wrapping paper thrown over it on Christmas morning. I can't remember if it was 85 or 86. It was one of those two years. Um, it was built with simplicity in mind. So we'd moved on from being able to buy computers as kits by then. Convenience really was king to the point where it came with a color monitor or a green screen monitor. I had the color monitor and there was only one plug, one power plug. You plugged it in and everything else just plugged into the monitor. There were like three cables and the whole thing then just switched on nice and easy to use. And it was really aimed at uh, the common man or woman on the street. Um, Alan Sugar, who ran the company, he, he used to describe his electronics as a mug's eyeful because he would make them look like something like a, pr a premium product, like a hi-fi, he would sold hi-fi stack systems as well, but it was just one big molded bit of plastic made to look like separates. You know, that was his approach, make it look expensive, but sell it at an affordable price. And that's what the CPC was. And it was very successful for him. Um, Amstrad did go on to make IBM PC compatibles and oddities like the Mega PC, which is the IBM PC merged with a Mega Drive or a Sega Genesis and things like that. But it was really the eight bits that were massively successful. And um, an obscure thing that span off from the CPC range in 1990 was the GX4000. I don't know if you've come across this. It's basically our equivalent of your C64GS where they took a Commodore 64, took the keyboard off and just tried to turn it into a console way, way late into the game when it was never going to compete. They did the same with the CPC. Um, what was, was that as, I'm oh, sorry to interrupt, but was that as blatant as with the GS? Because I remember, if I remember right, some games that were GS compatible still required a keyboard <laughs> press and thus were completely unplayable. Just couldn't play them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't think it ran into any of those problems, but only 30 games were released for it. It's not like the CPC didn't have a cartridge slot originally, so it's not like the C64 where you could get the old C64 cartridges and put it in. Every game was specifically made for the GX4000. But 1990... The Genesis was out, the Mega Drive was out, the Super Nintendo was out later that year. It, it just stood out like a sore thumb in the computer shops. Every kid looked at it and went, what is this? This is five years out of date. This is terrible. So, um, yeah, that wasn't a success. And that was pretty much how the CPC range ended. But the 464, whether or not it, it um, should have a place in the top three British computer uh, British microcomputers list. I don't know, but it always will on my, in mind because it was my first. So, great memories of I it. Think, I mean, there's something to be said to that because, you know, it's your top three. 
Sure. Know. Okay. Yeah, and I think I think that's I think that's completely valid. You know, nostalgia is valid, and if anything, I I'd argue that we celebrate it here. Indeed. Yeah. 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 So going back to what you were saying about oh, sorry, you you going, Jazzy? Oh no, I was about to. Uh, ask a question that would definitely like tangent off so <laughs> you can do it let's first. go let's go down that yeah, fork let's go. Let's go. <laughs> all right so here's a rabbit hole we can go down real quick here um we all know uh how cool d makes are i'm a big fan of them uh for those who don't know think about things like uh halo 2600 that is a d make uh are there notable d makes on things like zx spectrum uh, the BBC, other uh, British microcomputers, and uh, controllers in that scene. Uh, and if there is a, a DMAKE scene, are there any notable ones you want to talk about? I can't think of any specific DMAKEs for British micros. I mean, the, the communities are very active, particularly the ZX Spectrum community, because you have the ZX Spectrum Next, which was kickstarted some years ago, and is in a second round of kickstarting. So that is... Essentially, with the next, these guys have tried to create what they thought the next ZX Spectrum would have been if Sinclair had kept going. It's FPGA based, but it's very close to the original spec with extra things tagged on. Um, so there's a very active development community in that. But there's not really the connection so much between um, consoles and, and micros to the degree where people are demaking. They're just making new games. Um, mm. You can see things have been inspired, I guess, by modern gaming. I do love it when you see the mechanics of modern gaming come into games on 8-bit micros, you know, and you just think there's no reason you couldn't have done that in the 80s. It's just nobody thought of it. I love seeing those things happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I'm trying That's to awesome. Thank you. Head, because I, I remember, I, I think Nostalgia Nerd posted about a while back, uh, Castlevania Spectral Interlude. Which I don't know if that was a D make or a comp or an original fan game, but I know it's uh, what it's, it won't run in the base spectrum, but I think it requires like a plus model. Okay, so maybe a hundred twenty eight K model and the AY sound chip, which was on the later ones, that that probably works nicely. Um, yeah. Uh, likewise, on the yeah, likewise on the one hundred twenty eight K spectrum, there's a version of Final Fight. I think it runs at like one frame per second, but it's still incredible that they managed to do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that poor game! Oh wait, if I, <laughs> what, what, wasn't there an official? All right, I remember reading about this in uh, everyone's favorite beacon of reliable games journalism. Wink, nudge. <laughs> Game Informer. Uh, I remember them <laughs> doing... Uh, I remember the, the first time I heard about the Spectrum was them tearing into the Spectrum version of Street Fighter 2. Oh, yes. Some years yeah. back. Yeah. And I uh, you, can't, you, you can't touch the Super Nintendo version in that era on Street Fighter 2. Nothing comes close. Well, except, except maybe the Sharp X68000, but I didn't know they existed back then. <laughs> I have a question about the Spectrum version. Is it true you have to swap tape for every character. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, multi-load oh games God. were very common because, you know, you had 48K of RAM. So what are you going to do? You're going to squeeze every single character into RAM and have it looking anything like Street Fighter? That's not possible. And, um, 
you know, like most platforms, developers would always cater to the base spec because they knew they could get the best sales like that. Yeah, you could get ZX Spectrums with more RAM or you could add RAM packs on, but that's just going to hurt your sales. So, yeah, multi-loaders are a big thing. Um, Rainbow Islands, that was an awful one on the on the Amstrad CPC. Like every level you're, you're loading. Um, and then when you die, you've got to rewind all the way back. <laughs> But we didn't know any different, you know. Uh, discs were really expensive. Um, so, and, and the beauty of cassette tapes were our parents had, if we were lucky, multi-tape um, hi-fis back home. So you just put a blank tape in, put your game tape in, press play, press record, and, and you're a dirty pirate overnight and you're getting your <laughs> free games. And we loved that. And we, we traded them in the playground. <laughs> I don't know I love... why I never thought of that. That's so genius. It's <laughs> amazing. But the thing is that as well, and we just hit the timer, but I have one more question. Tape games, even on their own, compared to cartridge games, were they, could, they were usually incredibly cheap, right? Yes. I mean, pocket money prices. Let me just grab something next to me. This is... Oh, no. Yeah. I love the sound of someone walking away from a mic. You can just hear them in the room. It's like my favorite thing. It is. So we would go down to the shop and these would all be on um, pegs. This is how they were, just all lined up on the pegs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, £1.99. These would have been £1.99, £2.99 for something a bit more premium. And then £9.99 would have been your big box games, 9 99 and upwards. But yeah, that is... I think I've got that in, on shot and in focus. That is yeah. how we would have yeah. got them. That's Amazing. such a cute little blister pack. That's awesome. And I love that and I love that idea as well. And I think it's something we've only gone back to kind of with indie gaming uh in recent years of, you know your game being under five dollars, the games you're buying being under five dollars being the norm. Because that just sounds like such an accessible era of gaming. And you can hang it on a pegboard, which is really cool. <laughs> yeah, and every, you didn't go to the computer store to buy these. These were in every store. They were in your newspaper store, you know, your news agents. They were in the chemists. Chemists were a big place to buy video games in the UK. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, everywhere, everywhere just had a pegboard with these. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. That also reminds me of, of how Games Workshop, I'm not sure if they still do this, but they used to for a long time put their models in little blister packs just like that for like a single like orc or a single space marine or something but uh you, you mentioned being sold at pharmacies it just kind of reminds me of uh, a brief period where when i i was uh in the states where uh you could find gba and ds games at walgreens which is a, a I'm not familiar there. with Walgreens. Sorry, that's sorry for the awkward silence. No. I'm like Walgreens. What's no. that? No, 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 like, like think of like just your regular like chain like you know your your, your chain pharmacy, right? You know you go in there to right, pick okay. up like like some some Tylenol or something, uh, and then just <laughs> up near the counter. And they were never like big name games either. You know, it's definitely your ver your stuff like uh, you know, usually movie tie and stuff. Yeah, yeah, we had a chain, uh, a chain called Boots the Chemist, and uh, you'd buy your games there. But also, that if the buyers bought your micro and sold your micro in their stores in in the chemist, that was make or break. Um, you know, the Dragon Thirty Two was a computer that came out in the UK, and 
Um, I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm right in saying it just missed the Christmas in the chemists. Uh, they didn't get it out in time. Not, it wasn't the chemist's fault. I think it was production problems. And um, they got it in there eventually. But if they'd got that into the chemist, into Boots on the high street that Christmas, it could have really changed the fortunes of the, the machine and any machine for that matter. You had Boots the chemist and then later years you had Superdrug. <laughs> Superdrug was where I bought most of my games um, or WH Smiths. But it was great. I, I didn't start going to dedicated video game stores until 16 bits, until I had my Amiga. That's when I started going uh, toy stores and video game stores then in the 16 bit era. Yeah. So, really, something that, that didn't start growing until that era? They would have been around. Just my own personal experience was that we, we bought our games everywhere else. I don't even remember a dedicated video store in my town, but sometimes I would find them you know when i went on holiday or whatever but they would just be tiny shops stacked with little blister pack cassette tapes you know it wasn't any different they just had more of them yeah with that a name is... like boots the chemist it evokes this image of like a really shady dude in like a parking lot <laughs> dealing like aftermarket <laughs> hrt pills out of the trunk of his car <laughs> And a ZX Spectrum game. Yeah. yeah. I, didn't care. I didn't care how I got my game. So long as I got my gaming fix, man, I would go, I would go anywhere. Uh, well, I, I heard from him, if you buy a three-month supply of pills, they'll throw in a game. Well, what a bargain. What you don't bargain. even need... <laughs> Keeps you super focused on your gaming. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't yeah. ready for that one. <laughs> <laughs> we've, gone from, we've gone from HRT to, like, I was initially just thinking, oh, he's probably just, you know, I, I mean, I was thinking, like, hard drugs, but you know what? Outer all works as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's assuming a stradiol isn't. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, Neil, where can folks find you? Uh, you can find me youtube.com forward slash rmc retro or this week in retro is a weekly podcast we do covering the weekly retro news um or yeah i think that well facebook instagram twitter just search rmc retro and, and you'll find me on whatever platform you use i'm everywhere you can't miss me <laughs> and do you have a patreon oh yeah i should mention that patreon.com forward slash rmc retro thank you for the prompt <laughs> of yes, course. it's good stuff. And speaking of Patreon and sponsors and stuff, usually I would plug uh, our Podbean affiliate, but no, this week we actually have something very big, very awesome going on via Twitter. And uh, depending when we move stuff around, it will uh, be part of the show as well. And thank you to Ubisoft Canada, or Ubisoft Canada, uh, I'm, I'm trying to make sure I'm putting the right emphasis in the word, for giving us away... Are giving us several copies of Immortals Phoenix Rising to give away to viewers like you. Go to twitter.com slash podcast speedrun right now. Find the post, don't worry, it's pinned. Retweet it and drop a file to be entered to win. Uh, winners for this first round will be chosen June 30th. It's for any platform you want. Uh, PC, Xbox, Switch, PS4, not Stadia because who uses Stadia? Hey, Make no Stadia sure. Slender. We might get more hate mail. Yes. Oh, goodness. I, that, that's a story for another time. <laughs> yes, it is. But yes, thank you to Ubisoft Canada for providing the code. Enter while you can. Oh, did y'all hear that? Yeah. 
Yeah. Might have been my AC kicking on. Maybe. Maybe. Interesting. But anyway, there's, sorry. There's a ghost in the shell. I, I just I just heard a ding and it sounded re- remarkably like a like the ding I'd hear if I was like taking the sky train in Vancouver or something. I was like, damn, am I, I missed my train. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, thank you to Ubisoft Canada for that. And of course, speedrun is part of stuff we play, made in part uh, possible part by the stuff we Patreon. Patreon.com/slash stuff we play. Jazzy, thanks to you. I'm officially calling it that because it is too good for words. We also You're have welcome. emails if you have ideas for future episodes. Jamie at StuffWePlay.com and Jazzy at StuffWePlay.com. Jazzy, there's one last thing we need to plug. Plug what you do. So in the past few episodes uh, that I wasn't on because I was busy, you talked about Cleveland Audio Associates. Spoiler alert, it's actually Cleveland Audio Mixology. So if you listen back to the episodes, I did like a really like intentionally like jaunty edit so if you listen to it and you're just like jesse does all the editing she's part of cleveland audio mixology and i just like Uh. ham fisted (laughs) it in just as like obviously as i could (laughs) so if you listen to those back you get to hear a little easter egg (laughs) but it is true clevelandaudiomixology.com i will edit your podcast that you publish on podbean with our link Oh, uh, toddbean.com slash speedrun or use the code speedrun at checkout. Yeah. That might there, it that right. there it is. There yes. it is. There it is. Two sponsors, also, one bit or one podcast. We do have another sponsor that I do want to talk about super duper quick. Huge thank you to Castlemania Games uh, because uh, we pitched a video to them via email and they got back really quick. Um, they set me up with a GameCube DOL 101 uh, digital port upgrade kit and also a uh, Retrobit Prism. Uh, so we're going to be doing a video where we upgrade my GameCube from stock to not. <laughs> I didn't. I couldn't come up with a with a clever rhyme fast enough. But from, thank from, you to Castlemania for sending me toys. But from base to base. <laughs> Ew, I don't, I don't, I think I like, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's wrap this up. (laughs) So on that note, I have been Jamie. I've been Jazzy. And joining us once again has been Neil. I've been Neil. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. Thank you very much for listening. Stay classy and we'll see you next time. Bye.